0: The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm Hugh Muir. On today's program, the fallout from Leveson continues. Editors agree to some of the recommendations, but it's not enough for the campaign group hacked off. Will it be enough for David Cameron? And it's all change at the top of News International, and at the bottom, the iPad paper, The Daily, heads for the recycle bin. And as ITV shares hit one pound for the first time in five years. We take a look and ask, where did it all go right? This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week is The Guardian's head of media and technology, Dan Saber, and Media Guardian reporter, Mark Sweeney. Welcome to both of you. Um, we're recording on Friday. Lord Justice Leveson is not even in the country, but he still seems to loom large over everything. And he just gives some new thoughts to a conference in Sydney. Now, Dan, he's had a week in the Australian summer to ruminate. What's he been saying?
2: Well, he seems to be saying that we need a kind of internet privacy law or something like that. He's gone over to Australia. It says he, he said very clearly at the time and repeated actually here uh, that he won't – the report will speak for itself. You know, I'm a judge. I do judgments and – therefore I don't sort of second guess what I've just written by sort of, by, by, by speaking further about it. But in his Leveson report, all 2,000 pages of it which obviously I know you've read and all our listeners have read here. Uh, um, I read it
1: out aloud actually, it was a very good read.
2: Well one of the few things that people will know is that um, uh, there was one page about the internet in the Leveson report, so he goes over to Australia What does he give a speech about uh, the internet, privacy, or the fact that ordinary people are failing to understand that there's a law out there and you can't just I don't know, name rape victims or or, or bully people, or racially abuse people, whatever it is, online, and actually we're going to arguably need some new laws. I mean, I'm not entirely sure... Uh, Lord Justice leveson likes proposing laws, I'm not too sure that Parliament over here will have much appetite for a internet privacy law or the like.
1: So what's going on here? He was on his way to Australia halfway through and he thought, oh,
2: I forgot something, the internet. Uh, maybe that's right. It almost feels like that, oddly, actually. And, I mean, he really should have said more about it in this report, one would have felt, given the kind of nature of the, the media reality that, it, that is out there that he didn't I think is a testimony partly to the fact that the reason for the Leveson Inquiry and so much for that we were going over was really the sort of the, the crimes and misdemeanours of the past 20 years and this is in essence an inquiry about what had gone wrong in some parts of tabloid journalism on some occasions and, and therefore as we were looking at the sort of press as a whole how we had got into this position there was very little sort of prospective in Leveson very little look at the sort of economic challenges that face newspapers in the future or the digital challenges so I suppose it's an opportunity Opportunity for doing that and I think it wasn't his job just because someone names uh, Lord McAlpine in an inappropriate way on Twitter that and that came of course after the the main body of uh, witnesses had sort of come and gone in front of Levison. so I guess it was a chance to sort of look at issues like that and look at the questions raised by cases like that.
1: So does what he's actually said take us any further does it does it do anything to bring fresh thinking to what is to be done about some kind of regulation on the internet.
2: Well, when he says, it, um, while, while legal norms are in many respects capable of application to the internet, it is likely that new ones and new laws will need to be developed. So he's certainly taking his thinking, thinking forward.
1: Of course, it means that everyone who's trying to respond to Leveson has now got some new material to respond to. Already uh, the Labour Party have been uh, planning to respond with a draft bill and that's due any moment now. At, at the risk of being proved very wrong very quickly what are we expecting them to come up with
2: well they'll come up with as short a bill as they can to prove that you know a leveson law would be a terribly painless for the press but the truth is that labour are way behind the curve because you know david cameron the the fleet street editors have, uh, have come pretty much
1: to an agreement david cameron's come up with an idea
2: to to, to regulate the press via royal charter tell us a bit more about that Mm, I, wish I, I wish I understood it better, but it sounds a bit odd, uh, and I'm not sure it's very persuasive. So uh, Telegraph's got a story this morning saying that that what we might do is this sort of this supervisory body, the body that audits, marks the homework of the regulator, might be set up by Royal Charter, like the BBC, or as I've learned today, the Red Cross, or actually any number of professional bodies, even I think one of the, um, uh, uh, one of the journalist trade unions come trade bodies.
1: Does that not count as regulation by statute?
2: Yeah, it's, It feels like it, doesn't it? Actually, in some ways, it's worse because Parliament doesn't get a role at all. Royal charters are basically done as a sort of uh, agreement in, in practice between ministers and the organisation concerned, and I, they must go up to the Queen in Council. I, I don't quite know the constitutional niceties, but uh, that's how the BBC charter is done, in essence. And then uh, Parliament gets to have a sort of token debate, and that's one way of keeping the politics out of the BBC, but it also makes the conversation between the BBC and government very well often secret. So basically, Prince Philip will be in charge. Well, no, it's not that. Ministers will have greater leverage, I think. And uh, I mean, if you think a raw charter gives the BBC independence, then, well, uh, you know, total political independence, you know, the pressures the BBC can be put under.
1: Mark, I know you've been at this for a while now. Do you ever see? A, you think you'd see a meeting like that meeting of editors where they all seem to be sitting around the table? They didn't seem to be trying to take lumps out of each other and seemed to emerge with some level of agreement.
3: I must say, I did like the comment, um, I think it might have been Tony Gallagher, when he tweeted that it was like the five families being summoned for a meeting, where everyone thrashed it out. And it seemed to be an unusual level of, of, of agreement, given uh, you know, the, the factionalization of, of the newspaper industry. So you have to say it was quite exceptional. Uh, just to finish
1: our Levison chatter, Dan, I believe that you've been talking to a giant of the uh, Sunday newspaper market, Paul Cony, who is the ed- former editor of the uh, Sunday Mirror. What's he been saying?
2: That's right, and then what I started off by asking him uh, ab- about the editors' meeting, actually, at the Delaunay, you know, was that a first to get sort of 20 normally warring Fleet Street editors around the room and agreeing? Well,
4: it's certainly un- unprecedented, I think, or, you know, and... Uh, certainly a lot of old rivalries, personal animosities uh, and professional uh, differences have been if not buried, certainly have been pushed to one side. Given what is accepted as being, a, you know, a threat to everyone, whether you know whether you're the Daily Star at one end or the Financial Times at the other. And
2: and you think this is a deal that needed to be done? Everyone is sort of is the right response to the threat of state regulation, or or rather statutory underpin, I should say. I think say.
4: Yeah, I think it is the right response. I mean, I'm my belief in a. In a free press, in a press free from statutes, which, however you put it, Hugh Grant's dab of statute, whichever. Once you involve statutes, you involve politicians, and you open the the door to that slippery slope marked um, political interference.
2: You, you you've been an editor. Uh, I mean, can editors be sort of trusted? Are standards suddenly going to permanently improve now, or do you think we'll see a a gradual easing back?
4: I think the I think the phone hacking scandal and associated issues. The Leveson Inquiry has concentrated minds. Now, you know, whatever system you put in place, and I say I'm a strong advocate of independent regulation. I I think it's always going to be there's always going to be issues there. That you know, it's not a, they don't live in utopia. There's never going to be an absolutely foolproof system. But I but I honestly believe there is a serious serious commitment here. And that the chances, although, and any new road, there's always going to be, you know, problems. There may be accidents, but in fact, but you know, there may be some case of careless driving. But, but I do think, uh, at the end of the day, people are committed, and we won't see a return to the sort of issues that were exposed by the Guardian and led, in fact, to the Leveson inquiry. Uh, uh,
2: But also, we're seeing quite a sort of close negotiation between editors and Number Ten at the moment on this new albeit non statutory structure, I mean that almost seems to be perhaps defeating the purpose, and i don 't know if you've seen the, the the front page of the Telegraph today is talking about perhaps having a sort of a royal charter uh, model I think to sort of yes, it, but of course, a royal charter is, is something that 's agreed between ministers and the sort of body concerned so is this yeah, I mean, actually I, I, i've a royal charter
4: development a slightly sort of that one caught me by surprise. I mean, I've long been, Dan, I've long been a critic anyway of the old PCC, even before we actually had the phone hacking scandal, even before we had the Leveson Inquiry. To my mind, it's never been a regulator. That was a misuse of the English language. What it was... It you know, was a disputes resolution commission, if you like, and I think in that role it, you know, it did a much better job than it's often given credit for. Uh-huh. But it wasn't a it wasn't a regulator, and its performance over the phone hacking scandal, although they didn't have the power to investigate properly, the way they swallowed uh, <laughs> swallowed what they were told for British International, obviously, rendered them, I think, a, a unfit for purpose. But, but, Paul, know, and, um,
2: um, Paul, just rewind a week. I mean, if you sort of Look to where we were before the Leveson inquiry reported. Do you think that sort of Fleet Street is in, in in a pretty sort of good place now? Has Fleet Street sort of come out of this whole report and the sort of the days following quite well?
4: I think there's a great sigh of relief going around that David Cameron seems to be standing by a principle. I, I, to give Cameron credit, although I'm not a, a Cameron supporter generally, I, think, I do think he believes this genuinely rather than this being a... A political convenience, because he's afraid of, uh, of having a hostile press going into a, a 2015 general election. In fact, so I, you know, so I do think he, you know, that it, it, it is a principle for him, and I do think that it is a very important principle to uphold. And I do get the feeling that there are. That among Tory MPs who signed the letter supporting statutory underpinning, I do think that you know there are signs that some of them, at least, are changing their position or decide against voting uh, with Labour and the Lib Dems on a parliamentary vote. And I also think there are there are perhaps more Labour and Lib Dem MPs who have got misgivings than um, uh, than we realise. And my information is that the. But the cross-party media and culture and sports select committee, for example, in fact, you know, that there's a majority uh, there opposed to statutory regulation.
1: All right, time to look at some of the other stories of the week. Uh, Let's start with the shake-up at News International. Mike Darcy, currently number two to James Murdoch's number one at B-Sky B, is to take over from Tom Mockridge. Tom Mockridge, it's said, wanted to be head of the newspaper division in the reorganised Murdoch empire but lost out to former Times editor Robert Thompson. Um, Mark, what's Rupert's thinking there?
3: Well... I'm not expecting a call anytime soon, but it seems to be in That's Rupert's it. mind. Oh, he does call often, an, doesn't he? Well, if you're an Antipodean, it seems like you get a top job there if it's on the publishing side. So we've got Tom Mockridge uh, moving on and immediately replaced by Mike Darcy. Uh, both of them are, are New Zealanders. And obviously, Robert Thompson is going over to New York, and he's an Australian cut of the same mm, cloth as mm. Murdoch. So Mike Darcy w- would have to be described probably as, as the safest pair of hands you could you could find. If Mockridge was bored over as, as, I've done a good job on uh, Sky Italia, uh, I'll write this ship. I'm unblemished. Um, Darcy's very very similar and he's coming over and um, he's done a great job at Sky but he's kind of the, the silent guy. If if you think that the chief executive, Derek, is is not particularly effusive. I mean not many people possibly would have heard of Mike but his track record is solid.
1: Uh, Dan, what does this all mean? Is it, uh, It's quite nice to Talk about the moving around of the deck chairs, but does it actually mean anything, uh, particularly
2: if you work at News International? Uh, it certainly does. Uh, let's start with Robert Thompson. So, look, he's Rupert Murdoch's friend. He's his mate above all. Uh, his background, he's steeped in editorial as a Financial Times man, then editor of the Times and editor, editor-in-chief, I think they call it, the Wall Street Journal. Not obviously public company material because, you know, this is a man who's got to do uh, quarterly reports and uh, mm. look like he's in charge mm. of the finances and uh, handle investors and so on. but you know, Rupert Murdoch's still chairman and so and he'll be the biggest shareholder as well so Robert is close to where the power lies I think it's good news in a sense it will reassure folks within the business uh, you know, this is a man who understands the newsroom and the news trade he's got the confidence of the chairman I'm sure Rupert will be leading on the big deals I don't think anything's going to change there so uh, I think that sort of sums up Robert quite nicely as for Mike Darcy I mean, this is a guy, Mark's spoken well about him, but this is a guy who's not worked in newspapers, no known feel for the medium. And, you know, newspapers, you either like them or you don't. And they're not terribly, but if you're trying to run them as rational businesses in a, in a profitable sort of way, they're not very not very sort of responsive to that sort of thing. So I think uh, Mike you know, may have a bit of a way to go to demonstrate that he loves the medium. On the other hand, an awful lot of what you've got to do at Wapping is deal with, frankly, deal with the police, with possible court cases political relations government relations in a very tricky environment there you need a real sort of a corporate suit somebody very level-headed I think that's a good point though isn't it I mean he's been at Sky and it spins off
3: uh, loads of money in its spare time you know billion in profits and he's going to a loss-making business Uh, things always run smooth when you're at a a business which is financially a a powerhouse so he is going to have quite an adjustment getting used to, to I mean outside the sun there's not a lot profitable there.
1: Alright, we'll stay on the Murdoch just a little longer, um, because the tablet newspaper The Daily, which was launched by Roop with a, a blaze of publicity and hope, will release its last edition on the 15th of December. When he launched it, as I say, lots of goodwill. But
3: uh, did anyone other than Popper Murdoch really think it would work, Mark? Well, at the time, I mean, he launched it alongside Apple at, a, at an all bells and whistles event. So it was sort of held up as the next leap forward. He, he clearly thought it was going to do great things. Um, orig- in the original interviews, he said the, the success would be a million or more subscribers. Uh, about half a million, depending upon where you look, would have been break even. But it didn't do much more than I think than sort of a hundred
2: odd thousand. So it certainly didn't achieve its aims. Dan, where did it go wrong? I don't know if people want to pay for content on, on, on the net. And, and and if they do, they only want to from the most established of brands. Look, I think one of the things it says is that it's really tough to make a paywall uh, online subscription product work. The people that are doing so, either if you're the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, have these huge brands behind them. And I think, again, you probably need a bit of that metered model, not just a sort of iPad-only, all-or-nothing Subscription product, but it's um, you know it's a rare miss from Murdoch. Who, who you have got to remember most of Rupert's biggest hits over the forty years have been from start have been from startups. Whether it's you know Fox Television, you know or the Sun or the like, Th- that's how he's built his business. And it's unusual to see him sort of misfire. I mean, similarly perhaps with the London paper as well, the free sheet uh, uh, only recently. So a um, little bit of the magic t- touch gone there.
1: More ammo, perhaps, for those who say that he just doesn't really get the digital thing. Well, MySpace wasn't a six-year-old ultimately, was it? So, questions here. Mm. All right, let's move to the BBC and the Pollard Inquiry, which was set up to investigate the Axe Newsnight investigation into Jimmy Savile this time last year. That looks set to report back around the 17th of December. Dan, a gloomy Christmas for some people at the BBC
2: then. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, the Pollard Inquiry seems to have sort of spiralled nicely out of control. I don't know, it cost half a million quid, maybe more, and it's turned itself into a mini Leveson. I mean... Uh, Newsnight executives and BBC News executives have been grilled for hours by a QC. Right. It's extraordinary detail. So, this report, when it comes, is going to be another big tome, one fears. And almost certainly uncomfortable reading for quite a few executives. And I mean, it's an open question if they'll, you know, will we see resignations? I
1: think. What are they saying? What's it been like? Are you hearing tales of trauma? Are there kind of screams coming from a, a closed room? Well, no, nobody's
2: saying anything, of course, because you'll understand there's everyone signed a non-disclosure agreement. And whilst it's not on oath, everyone's a bit uh, 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 a bit scared and yet I've heard stories of the stenographers mutinying because the evidence has gone on too long you know gone on for hours too long <laughs> hyper precise questions on individual emails you know an email that we dashed off in a moment and you're being sort of quizzed by that by this by this QC Alan McLean as he defended, uh, defended, represented Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell in the Hutton inquiry of all things, which is no fun for the BBC either. So yeah, that's the context, I mean, and rather exacting and demanding work. So I fear we're going to get an exacting and demanding report.
1: Well, and I'm sure we'll cover it fully here on Media Talk when uh, when it's released. But some other stories. ITV shares have climbed 2.4p to the nose-bleeding heights of 101.3p. The reasons? Positive viewing figures for the finale of I'm a Celebrity. Now, we'll be talking to Vicky Frost in a bit about one of their new dramas. But apart from the sight of Nadine Dorries eating lamb's testicles,
3: what do you think's turned the station around, Mark? What have they done? Well, that's the highest their share price has been in about five years. There's a little bit of an ITV love going on. But it's sort of, it, it is in some ways quite simple to explain, but I don't think it's it's quite that clear. On the simple side, their ITV Studios looks like it's finally hit its straps, it's back in business, it's doing well with the productions, it's up about 20% year on year, I think it's going to hit about 100 million, they said, in profits, and digitally, a uh, similar thing, 20% rises there, which is good. These are the key things that have been criticised through several management regimes now, so halfway through Adam Crozier and, and Archie Norman's reign, it looks like they might be making some progress. But on the other side of the, uh, of the coin, you've got shows like X Factor are not doing that great. It's still a juggernaut, of course it is, 90, 100 million pound franchise, biggest thing you're going to find on TV. But it's, it's viewing is down, you know, million mm-hmm. odd, maybe it might affect their, their revenues and rates around advertising, possibly about 10% down. And that will affect how things are negotiated with media agencies for ad deals for next year. But I was speaking to Crozy the other day, and they're brushing off any issues. There's no big sports events next year, nothing to peg big advertisers on, and yet they think they're going to sort of brush through what will be expected figures which are not going to be as
2: good. They're confident. It's it's an interesting conundrum. I think this tells you what's often been the truth about ITV's share price, which is it's a sort of a play on the overall state of the UK economy or the perception of the overall UK economy. And I think after a long period of trauma, uh, uh, there's a sort of, you know, I think we we're talking about 1.2% forecast growth in the autumn statement for next year, uh, you know, against a period of where nothing much has been happening, happening economically. Now, whether you believe that or not, that's a whole other discussion, but the city seems to be believing something because as Mark's saying, this, you know, going back over a pound is uh, 2007, I think, type territory. But I think there is something else going on, which is I think people must be have a quiet confidence in Crozier and Norman about whom you never read, you never... Hear about, you know, News International in trouble, the BBC's in trouble, mm. someone mm. else is always in trouble. ITV seems to be sailing on despite the problems with the X Factor that uh, just the weakness in audience and the loss of those a million viewers, despite the problems with the X Factor that have been talked about.
3: Yeah, the, the, the benefits th- of tranquility and stability. I that suppose. would be the Schofield McAlpine incident, notwithstanding. <laughs> other, other, well, other than that, they've flown pretty free and clear. Uh, yeah, and I suppose they've
1: <laughs> probably got some brownie points for having dealt with that quite well.
3: Yeah, I think uh, quickly. I think they did. Yeah, I think they did quite a good job of it. It, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? It's, it's it seems to be one year it'll be Channel Four and, and the Andy Duncan funding gap of 150 million. Another year the BBC will walk into it, and then it'll be Sky and the Murdoch takeover. And then you know ITV will have some sort of phone-in crisis. And ITV seems to sort of sort of be just riding it nicely at the moment.
1: Well, as you say, um, Philip Schofield got told off, and uh, on the BBC on the Today program, Evan Davis may or may not have been rebuked, depending on who you ask. For reasons. Interview with the Chancellor, George Osborne, on Thursday. Let's hear a clip of that.
2: If you take those out and you take out the 4G licence, borrowing would actually go up this year. It's a simple, simple question, If that is, and I'm asking if that's the case or not.
1: Well, I just don't think you can strip out all the... D- so you don't want to answer it. No, it's extraordinary. So I'm, sorry, I'm so, sorry, I am answering your question. It's not that I'm not answering it. It's like saying, well, if I you know, went ahead with the fuel duty rise in January, which is the same month that the uh, 4G receipts are scored to, you know, well, what would happen then? Well, of well course, that would be a perfectly reasonable, or, uh, reasonable question. Uh, or, uh, I didn't choose to ask or, it. Or, or indeed, what happens if we do, don't go ahead with the big increase in investment yeah. allowances another from January? Another interesting question, which I chose not to ask. I would say, the money we get from the 4G receipts which is an independent number it's not one we've come up with the actual sale is done independently of us you know that money enables there
3: you go three falls one submission Mark was that poor form by Evan? no I mean I, I think it was fair enough you, you get plenty of plenty of waffle going on don't you and and sometimes you want some direct que- direct questions and direct answers uh, maybe a bit harsh if he was you know if he was rebuked Dan what do you think did uh, Evan Davis pick up John Humphrey's coffee mug that morning or something?
2: I thought it was a bit of an odd interview. It was, I mean it's right for Evan Davis to be incredibly combative and interrupt the chance and so on but I think they they reached a sort of new level of testiness and I think where Evan sort of you heard in that clip I think Evan asked a question and then sort of George Osborne starts and Evan's heard the answer already previously and he doesn't like it and he said look let's not bother and I think that's what got Craig Oliver worked up he just thought look you know Evan Davis can ask the questions he likes but he really ought to at least you know if George Osborne's starting with an answer he doesn't like he ought not to just move on and say no I don't want to hear that answer.
1: Craig Oliver of course the, the government's official spokesman but aren't, yes. aren't you in a difficult place when you start making complaints like that it just sounds as if your man came off worst and that you're a bad loser. Uh, there's,
2: there's certainly something to be said for that and there's heroic ambiguity about what happened next of course which is sort of, I think Craig said a few texts and somebody rang him and there was a sort of quasi apology I'm not quite sure who, what he, I can't establish who it was at, at the B but then the word gets round that Evan Davis had a sort of slap rap on the knuckles and Evan David saying no such thing so I suspect there's a bit of um, the BBC executives managing number 10 a bit sort of saying oh yeah frightfully sorry sir Uh, whilst at the same time saying to Evan well done lad carry on
1: well we'll see the next time those two meet we'll know um, if there's been some fallout from that particular you you
2: can hear from George Osborne's voice though he didn't like he he didn't like the tone that Evan Davis struck on a couple of occasions
1: which was probably the best bit of it (laughs) Um, Dan and Mark thank you very much Vicky Frost joins me now. Vicky, what have you been watching this week?
0: I've been watching quite a lot actually because the schedules are quite jolly at because the moment. that's what you do. Yes, that is what I do. <laughs> but also because there are things to watch which is always nice as well. I have been watching Inside Clarages is what I started off watching uh, this week which is uh, a BBC2 fly-on-the-wall dock uh, inside as it says, as you might expect Inside, inside Clarages.
1: It, says, it does what it says on the it, tin. It
0: does exactly what it says on the tin and actually it's it doesn't try to do loads more. It doesn't try to ask madly searching questions. And obviously there are a lot of questions it leaves hanging, which I quite like about, you know, people spending, you know, 10 grand on a hotel room for a night. It's a really interesting thing. It's uh, I think it's a three-parter. We've had one. There are two still to come. And I really like it. I think it's a really interesting look inside the hotel. And I think... It's also a really interesting look into the lives of the rich, and it leaves plenty of space for you to draw your own conclusions.
1: Why is it so good? Because we, I mean, we go inside everything at the moment. The fly on the wall is kind of that genre is everywhere. So why is this one done so well? Because people seem to love it.
0: Um, I think it's about the characters. I think. I mean. I, I mean. I think that's always sort of what drives these kind of observational docs: is how good your characters are. And um, there's something actually, I think, about how international the hotel is as well, Mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of its guests and uh, the people who work there that make it really interesting viewing on loads of levels. It's kind of, it's nice to sort of see that snapshot. And it says something bigger about Britain and kind of also just about people who go to work and enjoy their job. I mean, you might be sort of thinking, God, I can't believe you do that job. Doesn't that make you mad? And it's the idea that, you know, you, could, you you know you're in such opulence all the time, but you're just kind of serving as a butler, and and people saying, "But well, I take great pleasure in that," and I I never query these people having so much money when I don't. It's an interesting thing, I think, really
1: interesting thing to do at the moment, isn't it? When I mean, everyone's cash strapped and we're we're a- amid austerity, and we don't really feel that we're in it uh, all in it together. Do you think people like watching the idle rich doing what they do in Claridges?
0: I think that is part of it. Actually, it's that really fascinating world so removed you know this the idea of spending that much money on a you know on a bed for the night is just crazy it's kind of like you know i would want a house you know but it's it's so there is i think that um but i quite like the way this is done in the in the way that it's it's quite sort of artfully done i think in terms of there's not sort of blame attached to stuff you know yeah. and and you you know and and sometimes i think like the old couple we saw this week it was sort of like well you've got this money you want to spend it this makes you happy well then sort of fair enough I mean it's not if I had loads of money it's not what I'd spend my cash on but I'm
1: not you. I think there was a there was a a description of the when they were talking about room rates I think they said that the six thousand pounds that one guy spent a night and basically that, that was the cost of buying a small car you could buy a small car every day of the week for what he was paying to be at Claridge's to what extent do you think that the uh, the guests were the stars to what extent were the staff the stars?
0: I was slightly surprised I think that so many guests were fine about it. If I, you know, if I was paying 6 grand a night for a week's holiday, I don't know, I'd want loads of people to know about that because I think people <laughs> might judge me a little bit. So I was really surprised. But I do think actually this is driven by its staff and they're the people who are really interesting about it because it's you kind of you're just getting sort of a real glimpse of the rich but it's what's going on behind them and I think it's also the things that you know this idea that well she's coming for a month but she wants a jacuzzi okay then we'll build her you know we'll build her a jacuzzi in the bathroom and take it to pieces I mean that's just fascinating
1: and people have talked about the way it's made you talked about the, the fact that it's almost given room to breathe isn't it is in a very understated way and they've been very, Lots of praise for the director, who is the voice, but you never see her. Yes. Do you think it really gains from that?
0: Yes, I I, I do really think. I mean, I think there were a couple of ill-judged moments where it felt slightly forced, and she, it felt like slightly like she was forcing, I think she was sort of saying, you know, well, do you think this will be the last cu- this couple's last Christmas here? And I felt, well, you don't really need to ask that question, because I think we're all asking ourselves that question. But generally, I think it's very well done, and it doesn't overdo it but equally there's enough direction here it's not uh it's not a fixed rear camera we are sort of being directed in it which I quite enjoy. That's exactly
1: what some people liked in that she seemed to have a very velvet gloved way of asking some fairly pointed questions yeah and and in that case I think actually the woman uh, from that couple that she asked you know will this be your last question didn't she die before transmission?
0: Uh, She did die but I just thought, um, you know, it's that really fine line with the documentary, isn't it? About when you're asking the question that the audience desperately wants you to ask and needs you to ask, and that's your job to ask it, and when sometimes actually that question is irrelevant because it's going to be answered later in your documentary, in any case, and also because you're not going to get an answer, it slightly intrudes onto the documentary, if you know what I mean.
1: One thing that sends me mad is, you know, that kind of uh, Desperate Housewife music that they have in the background. sends me crazy. Whenever I see a programme with that, and I've got to leave the room. (laughs) And they've got that here, but it doesn't seem so intrusive.
0: No, although intrusive, yeah, intrusive music is, I think it's everywhere at the moment. There's a brilliant BBC4 doc about uh, Rome this week that I really enjoyed apart from you know this bombastic soundtrack like I could hardly hear what was going on sometimes uh, yeah I feel like sometimes just need to you know take it back a peg
1: alright well let's switch channels um, because the town um, mm. seems to be uh, making some waves it's an ITV drama and, and normally um, that that isn't your uh, guarantee of excellence but people are being really really complimentary about the town aren't they?
0: Yes I mean it's not your guarantee of excellence although to be fair to ITV they have been making a real effort with their drama um, and they've had some very good things uh, this autumn they had Mrs Biggs which I really liked uh, although they sort of slightly threw it away I think in the scheduling. Um, so the town this is written by a uh, pre- uh, playwright Mike Bartlett it's his first uh, a, te- a television play uh, and television. Uh, well it's a three part so it's not writ- strictly a play um, I think it's just beautifully written and I think it brings something quite new to television there's a new feel to it that I really like um, it stars Andrew Scott who uh, we last saw as Moriarty mm. and is a really great actor and I really like him here um, less scary here well, less scary, but actually quite an ambivalent character uh, in that certainly in that first episode, uh, which I really enjoyed. You know, there's um, I slightly if you haven't watched it, and I, and I urge you to go and watch it on catch up. I slightly don't want to spoil you because uh, the end of the first scene is fantastic piece of drama. Um, uh, but when we do first meet uh, Andrew Scott's character Mark, it's quite ambivalent. So he's coming back to the place he grew up. He doesn't really want to. Is going to ruin his life etc and you know that he's quite ambivalent as a character but what Bartlett does so well I think is he captures that feeling you know when you're going somewhere out of duty yeah, yeah. and you know and also it's, it's weird because feels nothing has changed but yet yeah, everything has changed and I think that's a really difficult thing to capture on screen and I think he does it really well it's, it's an interesting thing this
3: What does this
1: tell us about the story of ITV? I mean, is this another move towards the BBCfication almost of of ITV with um, all the praise they got for the Savile programme, which people said that was a kind of BBC kind of programme? This drama seems to be a BBC kind of programme. ITV, in a way, is uh, kind of stealing some of the BBC's clothes, isn't it?
0: Maybe. I think um, I drama is really important reputationally to a channel. Uh, probably totally disproportionately important, actually, to a channel. So um, in the same way that we're seeing Channel 4 doing, you know, upping its drama, you know, it's been important to ITV... to to up their drama, I think. And also because, you know, this is a channel that's become very defined by kind of X Factor, Got Talent, you know, those big, shiny floor talent shows. Actually, it's important that there's a balance to that in its drama. And the thing with ITV is it's just a bit madly inconsistent, you know, because it does brilliant things like Appropriate Adults. But then it will have a lot of sort of by-the-book crime that's not really here nor there, really. And I think ITV is sort of in not not bad shape at the moment. I mean, apart from the fact that X Factor is, to me, feels very much like it's on its last legs.
1: Let's morph smoothly, let's segue smoothly into that. <laughs> why is it on, in its, on its last legs?
0: Well, why indeed? I mean, uh, it is an interesting thing, actually, this, isn't it? Uh, it feels like X Factor has really struggled this year and I think that's partly I think that's partly just you know we're a bit tired of it we've seen it for a lot of years there's you know we know how the stories are manufactured we you know we know what sort of process the uh, contestants go through. It's partly because actually none of the contes- none of the finalists certainly are very interesting at all. And I don't think any of the last cut were that interesting. You know, there's not really been a standout mm. star. It's also because the judges are just really boring. You know, <laughs> I just don't care what Nicole has to say. Talisa looks like she wants to be somewhere else most of the time. She's furious. You know, Louis, well, you know, is Louis. Actually, he looks he- like
1: he's really doing his best to keep the show on the well, road. I think he? he
0: is keeping the show on the road to a certain extent, you know, and Gary Barlow is just really boring. And well, my
1: kids really hate him. It, do a, they? Yeah, <laughs> it's just a really inordinate hatred of him um, and overtly throwing things at the screen. And I wonder if everyone's doing that, or if a lot of people are doing that. And that's why just the connection with the programme has been broken a bit.
0: Yes, I think so. I think so. And also, you know, they've got themselves into this position where, you know, uh, they're kind of possibly going to get the winner they really don't want. So, um, you know, it's kind of like everything has gone wrong with this. It's no fun to watch. You're not going to get a good winner out of it. Ratings are falling. Uh, Something's got to happen. Uh, Strictly is totally, you know, absolutely on top of its game and X Factor really isn't. And I think it would be fascinating to see what happens with this next year. I mean, if Cowell comes back, can he save it? Well... Maybe, but I wonder actually whether this is a deeper thing than the fact we want to see uh, we're missing Cowl and, say, the glamour of Cheryl on it. And I wonder whether we're actually just slightly falling out of love with this format. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be have been on for a decade next year, and that's a long time, I think, for a format. Uh, you know, is such a huge show to, to succeed.
1: Well, let's go from something that seems to have lost its consistency to something that uh, seems able to retain it, Peep Show.
0: Mm. It's fascinating, this, isn't it? Peep Show is just like, you know, joyous. It's always joyous and it is, so it's back on Channel 4 for a new series and you just sort of slip back into it and it's like, oh, Mark, Jez, you're still fools. You're still in Croydon, you know, and the gags are always good. It's, it's a real success for Channel 4 and it's actually a real success that it's managed to keep going and be so consistently good for so long. I because
1: think. they have changed it, haven't they? The characters have grown up a bit, at which point you start thinking, well, is the whole thing going to deteriorate now because these are not the characters that we knew and loved? But they seem to have been able to, um, to achieve that transition.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's a bit of the audience uh, growing up at the same time, isn't there? And it's that, you know, that's that reflection back, I think, always kind of uh, helps the show uh, carry on perhaps.
1: Brilliant writing as well. There's oh. a lovely line that one said, a squirt of lynx perfume, the busy man's shower. <laughs> and yes, i've been well, doing, I, 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 <laughs> not taken a shower since it, it works for me they've moved it from friday to sunday which one reviewer um pointed to as an indication of the program itself growing up um is it as simple as that
0: I, i'm not sure it's quite as simple as that although I, I do think that's an interesting thing um i wonder whether it's quite a lot i mean uh, it's about slots i suppose but also about homeland so now peep show f- follows homelands and uh, it will get that sort of they will help each other in terms of uplift basically
1: so it's a scheduling how, how important does peep show need that kind of uh, uh, that kind of help from the program before
0: no i no i don't think it need. I, I don't think it needs help at all but i think also it's about channel four sort of you know owning Sunday night, really, you know, it's kind of like, well, if you've got all those people watching for Homeland, we'll give them something they'll really like afterwards and, you know, keep your whole sort of Sunday night really buoyant.
1: And has Homeland got that kind of lock? Especially some people who keep, say, keep, it, <laughs> it, keep saying it's going off the boil and it's <laughs> all going a bit strange. hilarious
0: because it's like, you know, every week it's kind of like, oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's better. Oh, no, it's awful. <laughs> and, you know, it's God, you know, I mean, basically this second series has all gone a bit 24 and, it's not what it was, but we cannot stop watching, and it has got us hooked i mean, I wonder whether I would watch third series in quite the same way. And I wonder whether people generally would watch the third series in the same way. But, you know, people complain about Homeland all the time and with reason. But equally, they do still watch. And they're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Largely about how ludicrous it is, to be (laughs) fair. But still talking about
1: it. They're not ignoring it. Vicky, thanks for coming. Could we understand that every minute you're with us, you're not watching television.
0: I know, it's terrible, isn't it? (laughs) All right,
1: take care. That's it for this week. My thanks to Vicky Frost, Dan Sabat, Paul Cony and Mark Sweeney. My name's Hugh Muir. The producer was Matt Hill. John will be back next week, but thanks for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.